Welcome to the Brand the Interpreter podcast. I am your host, Mireya Perez, and this platform is dedicated to sharing the stories of language professionals, that is, the interpreters and translators from around the world. This show aims to highlight not just the profession, but mainly the people behind the amazing work. These are your stories about our profession, and this is the Brand the Interpreter podcast. Today's episode is sponsored by Liberty Language Services, here today to bring you a big announcement. Liberty Language Services is excited to announce the launch of its sister company, the Academy of Interpretation, an online education and learning platform for the language services industry. The AOI's mission is to expand access to educational courses while establishing a standard of quality and professionalism. The Academy of Interpretation was founded to address the widespread problem of untrained interpreters working in the field. The AOI offers professional accredited courses for interpreters and serves as a platform for organizations to refer their interpreters for training. The Academy of Interpretation is offering Brandy Interpreter listeners a 10% discount on all courses using the discount code AOI10BTI. This code cannot be combined with any other discounts. But check out the episode notes for more information about the Academy of Interpretation. Liberty Language Services is a woman and minority-owned language services company that recently celebrated 10 years of providing language access services, and they're currently hiring freelance interpreters for a variety of languages. To find out more about Liberty or to apply, check out the episode notes. Welcome back to another episode of the Brand the Interpreter podcast. This is Mireya, your host. And as always, I am super grateful that you're here joining me today. Hey, did I mention next season the Brand the Interpreter podcast will be entering the video space? That's right. Next month, Brand the Interpreter will be on YouTube. So those of you that would rather watch the episodes now can do so. I'm looking forward to engaging more with the audience and every so often we'll have a live streaming and offer live Q&A. Sounds fun, right? Can't wait for next season. But today, today we have yet another great language professional here to share his story with us. Rudy Tellez was born in La Paz, Bolivia. Later in 1988, the family moved to the Philadelphia area. Rudy obtained his bachelor's degree in communications from Westchester University of Pennsylvania and his master's of education from Kutztown University of Pennsylvania. He's a court-certified, medical-certified, and conference interpreter and serves as an adjunct professor of interpretation for the master's degree program at LaSalle University. Interpreting, he says, has taken him to places like Guadalajara, Mexico, and Medellin, Colombia, with paid jobs. In 2019, Rudy organized a small group of interpreters in Pennsylvania to address compensation for court-certified interpreters. Later, along with two other colleagues, they formed the Tri-State Language Access Coalition, which successfully pushed the Administrative Office of Pennsylvania Courts to update compensation for the first time ever in 14 years. On January 1st, 2021, the new compensation began. So, without further ado, please help me welcome Rudy Tellez to the show. Rudy, I'm delighted that you're joining us today. Welcome. Mireya, thank you for the invitation. I've been looking forward to doing this podcast. Oh, absolutely. The pleasure is all mine, and I'm super excited to get started with all kinds of different great topics, I think, that we're going to be able to share more you than I with the audience. So I'm very happy you're here. Well, thank you again. I'm looking forward to sharing um, anything that I can to help the profession. I'm at your service. Thank you so much. I'd like to get started with potentially uh, off-topic conversation or off-topic topic. We'll see. We'll find out right now. But tell me, what is Banana Day? <laughs> banana Day is actually hard to explain. But when I came to the United States back in 1988, I really uh, 
needed someone, a way to connect with the new culture here in the United States. I had to learn a lot of different things. And it really took me a while to become part of the culture. And by the time I realized this, I was in uh, a student, a senior in Westchester University, and I decided to come up with a day, a tradition that would be so unique that would unify the entire campus. And I was watching a movie and the idea came to mind. I just saw a t-shirt and I had a banana and I said, you know what, this is it. It's going to be banana day. So I, I woke up the following morning, so excited in student government. I went to the student government office and I told guys, I have an idea. We're going to have banana day. And people were saying, what is this? And I said, I don't know what it is, but we're going to buy about 3000 bananas. We're going to make t-shirts. We're going to have some costumes. We'll call the media and this is going to unify the campus. And people thought it was hilarious. And we decided to fund the day through different student organizations. And the day happened. It was a complete success. And Westchester now celebrates uh, this year their 26th anniversary of Banana Day, uh, which is uh, a day of being inclusive. It doesn't matter where you're from. It doesn't matter what you look like. It doesn't matter what you believe. You are all just laughing and having a good time at noon, the third Wednesday of every April, because you're holding a banana and you're just wishing people happy banana day. And because of the internet and the powers that be, it has become recognized around the world by companies that advertise because they look at the calendar, what days do we celebrate today? And banana day, every third Wednesday of every April around the world is celebrated. Who knew? That is amazing. Wow. I love that. Yeah, it's about dreaming and developing a plan. And I, you know what, we're going to get into that actually a little later on, but that that is just an amazing and great and inspiring story to kick off our conversation. So thanks for sharing that and clarifying that because I was super curious. <laughs> now, I, I, it's a question I get a lot and a lot of people uh, don't understand what is it about, but I, besides my birthday, that's a day I look forward to and I go on Twitter and I see greetings from around the world about this day. And as a matter of fact, my sister who lives in Singapore broke the news that it had gone worldwide when her son came from pre-K and said, mom, guess what today is? And they're 12 hours ahead. And she said, what? It's banana day, mom. And my sister couldn't believe it. And she calls me and tells me, you're not going to believe this, but my son just celebrated banana day at school. And I had to explain to him that you created this at Westchester University. It blew my mind. It still does. Amazing. Isn't that yes. amazing? If you can believe it and you're willing to work hard for it, some crazy things are going to happen. And I this is a that. good crazy thing. <laughs> I love that. Let's get started with going back. Actually, you mentioned something within that story that I'm very interested in, and which is something that I really like to begin at truly our conversations, unless there's something a uh, curveball that came in like just now. You grew up in La Paz, Bolivia. That's where you were born, correct? Correct. Talk to me yes. a little bit about more about your childhood there. Well, um, I'm from La Paz, Bolivia. My father from Oruro, my mother from Cochabamba, and we were living in La Paz. I was lucky to go to a school that uh, really took the time to teach me how to read and pay attention in class because that really became the essence and the right formula that developed me into the interpreter that I am today. But I hadn't realized it until after I had even finished my master's degree. So I went to school called San Ignacio de Loyola, and they were very skillful at teaching. And it uh, turns out that I was paying attention all along. It just took me a little bit longer to find out what is it that my calling in life was. So even after going through college and everything, everything goes back to La Paz and what I was doing when I was growing up and uh, my roots. And then your family moves to the States. What was that like for you at such a young age? It's shocking. I think that uh, every immigrant has a story as to how we end up in, uh, in the United States. Um, I, I really, I was 15. I had, um, I was just developing my uh, friendships, relationships with people and all of a sudden having to leave everything behind, um, my pets, my home, my room. My dad uh, worked as a surgeon in Bolivia. My mom was a biochemist. When we came to the United States, none of that mattered. So my dad was, uh, who had never cooked in his life, by the way, because we had somebody who used to take care of that at home. 
um, had to learn how to slice potatoes and, and my mama had to help him do the salads. And that's how we were going to make a living. He couldn't speak English, neither did my mom. So the chances of them from the beginning to land a job in, a, in the profession that they had worked so much their lives for wasn't really, a, you know, it wasn't going to happen. Uh, it really taught me a lot. It really taught me a lot because it showed that in order to change, sometimes you have to sacrifice a lot. Mm -hmm. And this became a huge lesson for me when I had to change my job as a professional here in the United States and dive into this profession of interpretation that I had zero idea and zero certifications, zero knowledge. I didn't even have an acquaintance that was a translator, much less an interpreter. And I went for it uh, because my mom, again, found a way to to push me into this profession without really knowing that it was going to become my passion. Yeah, I, and we're going to dive into how this came to be. But still, let's let's continue the conversation about this drastic change in your life at such a young age. You guys come to the States, you don't speak the language, neither do your parents. But there's a story that you mentioned about a television. Yeah. Share, share so, with us this story. I was 15. The place where we lived, it was very small. And in the afternoons, I would go and there was a golf course next to where we lived. So the first time I found a golf ball, it felt like I found $100 because in Bolivia, you just don't get a chance to walk around golf courses a lot, much less play golf uh, the way we do it here in the United States. So this was my collector's, my, my, my diamond in the rough, if you will, that I found. But then as I kept on walking, I kept finding all these balls. And uh, the more days I would walk, I just kept collecting all these things to the point that I just said, um, we have a lot. Maybe we should sell these things. So I pitched the idea to my sisters who were much younger and cuter. And I told them, why don't you ladies do a drawing of Snoopy playing golf? And we sell these used balls that people lost anyway. And I'm sure we can sell like five for 20 or something like that. And they said, okay, because we had asked my parents, can we have a color TV? Because it's summer, there's nothing else to do. Uh, we didn't even have cable. So the TV we we're going to have, which just had to be free TV, but it was going to give us a glimpse into what this culture had to offer. So um, we decided to do this. We went to the golf course with my sisters and I'm hiding behind the bushes. They're just sitting there, this watering hole where, you know, the golfers come in to get a drink and they say, hey, ladies, what's going on? So like we're selling golf balls in our broken English. They thought it was cute. And we made enough money before we got kicked out of the golf course that we could go home and tell our parents because the manager came and said, like, you guys can't do this. That's when I jumped out of the bushes and explained, these are my sisters. We didn't know in my broken English again, but we did it. So they, what happens next is we go home and we count the money and we had over $200 that these people willingly gave their money for whatever we we're going to do. And we told our parents when they came from work, can you drive us to the store so we can buy a TV? And they reminded us, we don't have the money to be buying a TV. And so, no, we just need a ride. Take us to the place and we can do. So this became our first entrepreneurial experience at the age of 15, where we learned that there is value in the work that you do. You can find trash to some people. And if you have the treasure mentality that how you can fix things around, and it's a hard work because I had to find the balls. We had to come up with the process of selling the balls at uh, the package. My sisters took care of that by presenting it. And then we had the TV and that TV played a crucial role as to how I became aware of the culture in the United States. It allowed me to watch English because that's all it was. It allowed me to understand the culture, watching the Fred Flintstones, watching, uh, you know, Double Dare, all of those shows that were popular then and understand how this worked, because it was a lot different than what I was seeing in Bolivia. So by the time I had to go back to high school uh, after that summer, I hadn't gone to camp. We couldn't afford it. But that color TV showed me enough to understand what I needed to know, how to play baseball how to watch football, how to, what, what is popular? What are people talking about? And now I could relate, which was a lot different than when I had just started because it was pretty much like we're leaving tomorrow. We're going to cry a lot. We're here in a new country that is a lot bigger. 
and now we have to learn, but we don't know how we're going to learn. That TV, that investment opened up the world to us. That and it taught idea. us a lot. Yeah, I think that idea opened up. It, it always, it, it, I'm starting to sense a pattern here about Rudy. So let's, I want to continue with the stories because I think there's always a moral to the story, right? There's always a lesson sure. to be learned. So, Absolutely. so I'm very much appreciating these. You come to the States and you talk a lot about the culture. What was the culture shock for you more than anything in comparison to the 15 years of your life that you had just spent uh, out in Bolivia? Well, I think uh, for one family, uh, family is very close in Bolivia. So we do a lot of things uh, centered around the family, visit the grandparents, having the uncles, uh, you know, having a party and everybody's dancing. You know, a party is actually where you're dancing and, you know, you're spending a long time together having fun. When I went to my first uh, high school dance as a student in Bolivia, uh, we were, you know, mingling and jingling differently than the very first high school dance that I went to check out in the new country. I just saw that they were like groups of people. They were just sitting around or standing. Some were dancing, but it wasn't the kind of party where, you know, chairs are against the wall. The music is blasting and people are just rocking it. Right. <laughs> so that was like a, that was like a little bit different to me. And, and you know, it just felt a little cold compared to you know hey how are you give me a hug and everything was more formal and and you know there seemed to be rituals to it but you are not explained about these things when you arrive even when you're taking esl classes uh the most important thing is they just want you to say hello uh it is a uh, very nice to meet you but People in the high school, in high school, in the hall, is like, yo, what up? You know, what's happening? You know, like, what? Hey, I, I don't get it. You know, so there were like a lot of things that uh, were changing. And just seeing the different cultures, too, within the United States, you know, first of all, I think I was one of two Latinos in the entire high school when I came. Um, so adjusting to that, um, that was a big change. Uh, something crazy that that it opened up my eyes about the world. When I came, when I was living in Bolivia, my race is white. So every paperwork that I had to fill out, I was always white. But then I'm here in the United States. I'm no longer white. I'm supposed to be Latino uh, or Hispanic. And, and then those were the kind of changes that I was trying to figure out. Who am I? How do I fit into this country? I'm trying to fit in. And how can I really make that change so... I'm accepted because I, you want to belong. But when you feel the man out, it's very difficult to find a way. Who do I talk to? How can I make this happen? Right. Mm -hmm. So those were the cultural changes that I was struggling in the beginning, comparing. And, you know, you can't go back to Bolivia. You know, there's no going back for a long time. So you have to make it happen. And you're looking for the way. And it's it's really a struggle. It took me two years to figure the whole thing out. Wow. I, I think that. It's interesting now that you're mentioning mentioning it that when we when we talk about language we always tie it to culture and yet just like you just said when there are newcomers particularly students and in these ELD uh, classes or ESL classes we push the language but we don't talk about the culture at all and for us it's exactly. backwards for us is right it's it's culture first but it's tied with the language so you can't have one without the other at least not in depth so i i find that interesting that you just pointed that out that it's it's true we don't talk about culture unless you turn the tv on and then you see it portrayed you start seeing and then you learn oh and at, at lunchtime you can go and sit with certain people or, you know, your ranking. Maybe there are things to do on the weekends that people do. So you find out people like to go to the movies or they like to walk around the mall. So once I found a friend who was a native of, you know, the United States, I'm like, say, you are going to be my friend. So what do we do for fun? And he said, let's go to the mall. And it was like, OK, so what's at the mall? And we're just looping it around. I'm saying, like, this is kind of boring. Like, is this what you guys do? And so, like, that's what I know what to do here. And I'm like, there's got to be more to this, man. You know, it, this is kind of boring. And he was like, well, how about we watch a movie? And I was like, yeah, but I mean, 
isn't there more? Don't you want to do more? So I think it was my personality just trying to say, like, there's got to be more than just going around on Friday night and walking around the mall with two guys. You know, it's it just doesn't sound right. <laughs> but uh, it, it allowed me to develop other skills later to realize that, yes, there is more to it. It's just that the company that I was with needed to learn also that there's more to it. Mm-hmm. You transitioned out of high school. And did you immediately know that you wanted to do university? I was confused. Um, I, I, to be honest, I hated high school in the United States. Uh, I had a countdown going. Uh, I didn't really feel like I belonged. I, I, I wanted to finish as soon as possible, but I had no plan as to what to do next. Um, so initially, my plan was to go back to Bolivia and, and live there. Uh, but that meant that I, uh, if I'm planning to live in Bolivia, that I have to go to the military in Bolivia to prove as a male that I showed up and I did the requirements that the country has for all the citizens to be citizens of Bolivia. So I went for the summer. I was limited there for how I stayed. And when I came back, uh, my father asked, what are you going to do? And I said, I have no idea. So he said, I know nothing about the education here in the United States. Why don't you just go to community college? I said, that sounds fine. So I went to community college, not really knowing what I was getting myself into. And that's when I began to inquire about how to join student organizations. Uh, I learned about student government. I learned about the school trips. I saw Phantom of the Opera for five bucks when we went to, you know, uh, the city of Philadelphia to see it. They weren't the best seats, but I was, I had a dry, I had a ride and I was able to see the show. I saw Le Mis for the first time. I was blown away. Uh, I was invited to go to conferences where I got the chance to see from the distance Spike Lee, someone that I didn't even imagine I was going to be breathing the same air in the same room. Uh, Maxine Waters, the representative who was allowed in the news back then. So it, it began to open up my eyes to saying, you know what? It doesn't matter where you start your education. It's what are you getting out of your education and how are you using it? Because I'm paying the same amount of money that everybody's paying in this community college. And yet I'm the only guy out of, a thousand who is here taking advantage of this moment. So it, it really allowed me to expand and just explore more. And, and it was it was great because I hadn't planned on it, but then I was beginning to see there's a formula to this. So when I transferred to Westchester, a much bigger school, two years later, I had plans. I was like, you know what? I see that Penn State or Notre Dame have these big traditions and big things on campus. What does Westchester have to offer? And when I began to be part of Westchester and I noticed that they didn't have it, I said, I want to leave my legacy here. I want to leave a tradition that is going to be so outlandish that people are just going to love doing it. So I left my mark at Westchester doing that. And later, when I went to my master's degree at Kutztown University, the students wanted to do something similar. So we ended up doing a project that is similar to it, and it became successful for that, that, that year. I left, and I think you need to do follow-up on any project that you want to become a tradition or anything. But, but it was good to see that the same success can happen if you have a passion to it. So that's that. I don't know if that answers your question. I always tend to go a little bit off tangent. Well, I, it, it always brings up other questions, though, it, with those stories. So I'm thinking, what happened between high school and university that now you felt more connected, that now you felt like you wanted to get involved in associations or clubs? What was the difference, you think? I think being a teenager, a lot of, there's a lot of, I, I sense that a lot of, um, I need to show off the way I'm dressed the way, the kind of car I drive. And then when you move on to college, that gets stripped away from you because now you don't live or you don't have the same safety nets that you used to have. And you're starting at the same level. And, you know, I felt in the beginning that community college was looked down upon, like, oh, you're going to Monco, right? Uh, I'm going to Penn State or I'm going to Princeton. Great schools. But again, it didn't stop me from saying, well, you know, this is it. I'm just going to stay at this level and that's going to be it. I, I work with people who have gone to Harvard. I work with people who have gone to Princeton. And they ask me, how would you get started? And I tell them. And, I, and they say, you know what? That's remarkable. You know, that we can share the stage. And I say, absolutely. Don't get stuck on the name. 
work for whatever your passion is, and then you'll shine. So you feel maturity was really what what led you now to put yourself out there more as opposed to when you were in high school, you feel like it wasn't, you weren't connected because everything was superficial. Correct. I think you, you summarized it perfectly. Yes. Better than I did. (laughs) Yes. Rudy. And then what happens at what point do you begin to, to get into the world of language? Was this even something, let's just begin by asking was this even in your radar? Did you know that the language profession had professionals, that there was training involved, that you could make this into profession? Did you, was this in your radar yet? I was aware, um, Maria. It's very interesting because um, from the beginning, since we came to this country, I was the first one in the family that, uh, you know, had to help my parents, even counting the money. I mean, it's embarrassing to see it in the beginning, but then you realize that, you know, this is how it starts. My dad couldn't really make the difference between a quarter, a dime or a nickel. And at one point in his country, you know, he was running the health department for the entire country. Right. So when you see your dad in a different role and you're like saying, yeah, this is this is a little bit strange. You begin to kind of uh, realize, OK, I'm, I, I am helping so these people can communicate and these people are my family. Back then, there were no interpreters. Uh, whenever you run into someone that spoke your language, you felt like you found someone from a different planet and you wanted to embrace them. It's like, talk to me, tell me more. What what do I need to know? And they're like, I'm in a hurry. I got to go. Then we can say mis propias cosas. Déjeme tranquilo, no? But we were like, mas, mas, mas. But, but it just wasn't working like that. So, um, yeah, it's it, it, it. there was that understanding that we wanted to connect. And I was doing the connection for my parents. And then... Again, watching TV one time, I just said, you know, there are people who make a living at the United Nations doing this. Let me see if I can do it. So a person was speaking in English and and then I'm like trying to start interpreting simultaneous with no training, of course. And after like 10 seconds, I was like, this is crazy. This is not meant for me. I'm never going to do this. So whatever. But there was that inkling, you know, like that that idea. Maybe I could, maybe, but. And then people always said, you speak two languages, you could do this, you could be a translator, you know, without really knowing the difference, you know, an interpreter and translator. So, and I didn't even know that. So I was like, yeah, I guess. But then everywhere you looked, and still, when people are looking for someone uh, to help them in the office, even doing important jobs, they say, we just need a high school degree, but you need to be bilingual. And we're going to pay you this little money. And I'm like, you people are crazy, you know, like this is this is a big skill. And 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 you if you understood, you would, you know, invest and you would probably gain make more money or you know, hit your goals faster. It's not about, you know, just getting a high school degree and then, you know, hiring a bilingual. So it, it wasn't me. I had it in me, but the seed needed to be put in place and needed to be beaten and beaten and beaten by my mom without knowing until I became interested in doing this. That's so that's so funny you say that because you did not set out then professionally to pursue the interpreting career, correct? Correct. Correct. I had no idea. And so you I, had a I day had no job idea. and then you took you took an assignment to interpret I, thanks to mom? I I pursued uh, education and, uh, you know, my master's is in education, uh, university administration. So I was happily doing that. And then uh, my mom calls me and says, out of the blue, I was at a LA fitness and a jacuzzi soaking up with these Korean ladies. And they said that I could be an interpreter. And, and then I said, give me the number. So my mom being also an entrepreneur, she called them. And before you know it, she is uh, getting phone calls so she can be an interpreter. And she was telling me, I am interpreting for people that uh, got injured. And I said, mom, your English, I don't know if I trust everything that you're doing. I mean, I'm going to be watching you on TV, you know, with handcuffs on for <laughs> something that's happened, I, you know, with a jacket over your head or something. Like, are you sure you need to be doing this? And she said, like, it's completely illegal. So I was dumbfounded. I was like, how can this be? I, I they, When I think of an interpreter, I'm thinking UN, right? right. Never interpreted that, never thought that they would be going to hospital visits or to high schools or schools uh, or court. Uh, that wasn't on my radar at all. 
But then one day she says, they're looking for an interpreter. You should do it. And I said, no, I'm not. I'm not interested. I don't want to do that scenario that I just told you already in my head. So she said, you should do it. And I said, no. And she said, I wish I could take this assignment, but I can't because it's in the city. Just take it. So I remember making the phone call to this agency after finally saying no to my mom like a million times. And I call them and they, they don't even ask me if I speak Spanish. They just said, cool, we're sending you the assignment. Here it is. Go. So nobody checked to see if I had any credentials. Nobody checked to see if I even spoke English or Spanish. And here I'm driving to the city of Philadelphia for my first assignment for the medical assignment for the eye injury. And I had no idea. I'm thinking in my head, what words can come up? Where do I stand? Do I say, he says, she says, el dice, ella dice. I had no idea, Maria. No right. idea. But I went. I remember uh, the, the driver was also an interpreter, on quotes, uh, a Polish interpreter who was uh, doing double duty, driving and interpreting whatever she could. And she's telling me whatever she can tell me in her broken English, too. So I'm just saying, this is like very weird. But uh, we went inside after waiting for three hours to see the doctor and the appointment lasted less than five minutes. And I remember that even though I can't recall exactly how those five minutes played out, I knew that I made them communicate to the point that I felt that I needed to do this, my next passion. And I drove happily out of the city of Philadelphia with a mission to change my life, but I didn't know how to get started because I have three kids at home. My wife is taking care of them. They're young and I have to make this happen. And now I'm no longer in love with what I pursue to get a formal education. And now I need to be working on, on this new project, you know, and, and, and that was scary. But I was so inspired to jump because what I had seen from my parents, they willingly left their profession. They willingly left their country and everything so we could venture into this American dream. And now I was about to do the same, but I knew the language. I had the degrees. So I have a safety net around me that I could fall back if I changed my mind and not be an interpreter. Uh, I need help. I'm scrambling to find interpreters for our board meeting. We have a staffed Spanish interpreter, but we need Korean, Farsi, and Arabic. Plus, we have a slew of IEP meetings coming up, most of them in exotic languages. I'm calling everywhere. I know what we need. I'm at the perfect translation agency at OCDE's Interpreters and Translators Conference. Certified Interpreting Services. They offer in-person and virtual services. Certified Interpreting Services? Yes. They're professional, warm, and perfect for our diverse district's needs. How do we contact them? Call or email. It's all on their website. CISinterpreters.com CISinterpreters.com That's just what we need. I'm contacting them now. Thank you for calling Certified Interpreting Services. This is Jasmine. How was that transition for you? Let's say that you're going to share in terms of where you started. Because, I mean, you already have the profession in terms of the degree, right? And the job itself. And you've got the family going, but now the seed has been planted and it won't let you be. How do you begin that transition? It was very scary for me because nobody tells you how to start your own business. Even though uh, we go to college and even though we, we get a master's degree, I think how you become an entrepreneur and how you get started is, is never told. And and, and it's something you have to figure out. And especially when it comes to interpretation. And, and at that time, 2008, is when I'm diving into this profession. I'm scared as to what I'm doing because it literally feels I have one agency that has offered me this opportunity and I'm dangling on this very thin thread and I have to slightly but surely climb up to two threads, three threads, four threads. Now it's getting thicker. Now I can climb more. Now I can swing and I can actually stop hanging on this thing and begin walking and running and jumping so I can be happy about what I did. So when I went to another assignment and I met two interpreters, I was excited. It was pretty much like finding someone that spoke another language when I just came to this country. To my surprise, 
um, uh, these colleagues of mine were not so thrilled to find me because they felt that this was their watering hole. This was their short business where they could be doing all these activities. And all of a sudden, they are not willing to share any type of information about what could be going on. And that was very frustrating because, you know, I am a new, I'm a newbie. I'm trying to learn, is there a certification? Are there classes? Is there a professional organization? Is it just medical? Is there something for judicial, which I didn't even know it was? How about conference? Uh, are there other agencies? But it was just, it was very cold finding that in the beginning. And then slowly my father was able to find out that there were these bridging, the, uh, bridging the gap classes that uh, the husband of a future colleague uh, was just taking. So I called quickly and I took the class and there was a community now that I could see and I was already interpreting so I, I could share stories. And then all of a sudden I'm like the, the, the good student in the class and I'm like feeling good about myself. And then, you know, it was just like, okay, I guess it's not just medical assignments now. I guess I can branch out later and do legal, maybe conferences. So I began to see the way out of this course. You say that if you were given the opportunity to start over again, that you wouldn't have, have dove headfirst into into this new profession or into this new dream. Why do you say that? Uh, because, well, now I can say that all of that helped me to be who I am now. But when, when you're young and you don't know much about this profession, you wish that you would have started earlier. While I had a job, if I could have gotten my bridge in the gap, I could have gotten maybe some assignments now that I am legit. Some sort of certification has been given to me that vouches as to what I'm doing. Uh, rather than this clandestine way of just kind of being dropped in the middle of the city and, you know, wiggling your way into the building and then all of a sudden seeing the patient who's just as scared as you are about what's about to happen. And then realizing, I wish I would have done this earlier. I wish I could have had the tools ready because I could just leave my job now and I could have more opportunities. But instead, I'm putting myself in a situation that I have found the passion of my life and I have big responsibilities with three kids. And, you know, you're trying to start your family in the right path and you want to see, I want to provide for my family, but I have this job that I have to leave so I can do this other job. And it's a pretty daunting uh, situation. So you wish that you would have gotten the certification for medical and legal so you can just have an easier transition. But instead, I am choosing to jump into a new profession where I have to find the tools as I move around. I have to network as I move around. You wish that you would have had all that already set up. Um, but, you know, it allowed me to be more effective. Probably I would have been farther along in the profession if I would have done that but it allowed me to really understand how to survive and how to make it happen. So every win that I had, it was celebrated even more because I had to figure it out. I didn't have to make this mistake again. I had already made many mistakes to figure out, oh, that doesn't work, so now I got to do this. I find it super interesting that it's not just about, you know, the profession and not just about what you're doing and getting into it. But as soon as you dive into it, then you start doing other things with the profession as well. You're passionate now about interpreter rights. What specifically do you fight for? Well, uh, there are two prongs to this thing. I think the time that I became solvent in the sense that I didn't have to fear not having a job because you know, as interpreters, when we get started, there is no guarantee as a freelance interpreter how much work you're going to have every day or every week or every month. So you learn to kind of like pace yourself and then do your things. But the moment that finally things are happening for you, you want to give back. You want to give back to the profession and you want to give back to humanity. And for me, uh, that became thanks to my dad and the hospital he was working where they had missions going to Honduras and the Dominican Republic. And they needed uh, interpreters to help them communicate what the doctors from the United States were teaching as volunteers to resident students in the operating room or going to the field or um, going to the hospital of children, children's hospital. So for me, it was like, this is my time to give back. I'm going to volunteer my time for five days. And we're going from the time you hop on the plane until you leave the plane. I'm on. 
whatever anybody needs. If you don't know what you're doing, come get me. I'll go and work out. I brought my simultaneous equipment if there were going to be some classes. So it wasn't just like Rudy just started as an interpreter. It was like, I know how we can connect the dots here and we can have productive meetings with simultaneous equipment, with professionals that know what they're doing. And the communication was fluid. The understanding was more passionate. You know, you could see that people were touched. And of course, being recognized as a doctor, even though I'm not a doctor, but every every patient say, doctor, doctor to me, because I had to wear, you know, like I was going in and out uh, the operating room. I mean, you know, I was I was right there watching brain surgery happen. You know, I was watching doing things that I would never even imagine that I would be doing. You know, I got the opportunity to work with my dad as a surgeon in the Dominican Republic where, you know, he was assisting uh, removing the leg. And I, and I was interpreting for the patient who was awake because, uh, you know, uh, we, there was no power in the hospital. So they had to use a different way to put the anesthesia on him. So it really allowed me to complete that and give back to the profession and say, you know what, you can give back. It's not about just like work, work, work. And, you know, like, uh, like, uh, okay, how am I going to make money? And then the universe kind of figures it out. It pays you back. And then you walk away from, I mean, I did this for five years until COVID hit. I would have done, I still want to do more because there's a lot more that we can do. Locally, we can do. When you travel abroad, it's a different experience. I recommend people to volunteer if they can. Uh, and, and you know, it's, it's just you giving your time and it makes you appreciate how much value you have. For doctors are going for the first time. They're like, oh, there's that guy. He's a translator. But by the time we're coming back, Rudy is the interpreter. The interpreter, that was an amazing job, Rudy. I appreciate the appreciation from doctors that have done top of the line surgeries and given their time too. And you have been on the same stage and helping that happen. You can't, I mean, the joy of it, I can't even put it into words so you understand, but I feel it happily boiling in me right now. So then you have that aspect. And then you have the other aspect of saying, well, I've been a course certified interpreter for, at that point, over 12 years. And there haven't been an increase in pay or compensation for interpreters. And when we're bringing to the attention of the powers that be out of the office in Pennsylvania that handles this, we are being dismissed on a regular basis. So how do you go about changing in the profession where you are freelance, you really don't have a staff position and there is the fear that if you raise your hand or you stick your neck out, you're going to get blackballed, you know, and that is the fear that it runs across the entire country. So and in Pennsylvania, it was no different. But COVID really pushed things to the edge when, you know, they value in one specific uh, county, the county where I happen to live and work, that said, we're going to compensate uh, new thing, even though there were really rules and compensation schedules, we're going to compensate $15 for 50 minutes of work via Zoom. How can I support a family? How can I support myself when there's one, not a lot of work, and now we're we're getting not even, you know, like a, a quarter, not even, a, you know, a, a tenth of what we should be getting. So we had to get organized and we began, some people start making some noise. I organized a group so we could meet. And slowly we, we weeded out a lot of the issues that we needed to address. And we had to, we were able to make gains, but we had to push harder. And that meant we had to get better organized. And we decided to form a coalition. So uh, my colleagues, Tatiana Hay, a Russian interpreter, uh, Isabel Wapplinger, French and uh, a Spanish certified interpreter too, and my uh, colleague uh, Gwen, uh, you know, we were, uh, dogged, you know, we worked very hard to just kind of put the whole thing together. It, it, it was a lot of work. We had to do a lot of fundraising. We had to get uh, people on board to understand what we were doing. And it was actually a challenge within our own group to believe that what we were doing is for everybody. Hmm. But the good news, after a year and a half of really fighting for it and pushing and and, you know, advocating, reaching out to our um, ATA, re reaching out to NAGIT, reaching out to our state senators, reaching out to advocates of the profession, we got a, not only an increase, but a, a, an understanding that we are a profession and we felt respected. And I think that is beginning to inspire uh, different states, different people 
to really think about what is it that we do. It's difficult what we do, and we need to be compensated. ATA places it very simply in their uh, canon of ethics that we need to be compensated. That is part of being ethical, too. Nagit doesn't have it yet. Maybe it's something that, you know, they can consider. But we may be freelancers, but we have to do a lot of work to prepare. Sometimes we don't even know what we're walking into. It literally feels like the door is going to open and a bear and a tiger are going to come at you and you have to figure it out. So nobody told you this was going to be at, you know, seven hour deposition. Oh, wow. They've been, you know, so we have to make it happen and we need to teach them that you don't do that. You should have two interpreters to do that kind of deposition. You should send the paperwork to the interpreters. You should, you know, so you have to kind of still educate the agencies and everybody. But these lack the gain that we were able to do with the coalition is something that we can point at it and we can look at it and say we did it because we chose to stand up and we had every right to do that. And I think if more people were to think like that and get organized, we would see more people willing to do their job of interpreter at the court level and be compensated for what they really are worth. And if you decide to go in the private market, you can you can do more. That's also your right. You are an entrepreneur. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, I love this because it 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 demonstrates also how the same that applies to you in that specialty will apply to me in my specialty. Will apply to someone else in their specialty. The profession is the profession, right? And so we're all doing schooling, and we're all doing training, and we're all getting certified in different fields. Then yeah. it should be across the board. And should Rudy decide to make a transition into a different specialty, the expectation shouldn't be any different because the specialty is still doctors, lawyers. The expectation doesn't change because they they change from from law firm to law firm or from one state to another. Right. Um, There may be regulations or laws that are that differ, but the profession remains the same. I totally agree. I mean, I'll give you an example. I, we have colleagues that have taken the time and have gotten certified to be certified medical interpreters. I'm, I'm NBCMI uh, certified. And, you know, when you when I received that certification and I presented it to the agencies, they said, or even in hospitals, they say, well, that's wonderful that you're certified, but don't expect more payment right. to do this job because they don't require you to do that. Right. So I was like, where is the quality assurance? Where is where is the incentive? You know, and even if you have a staff interpreter for the medical a hospital, um, you would think that they would be compensated a bit more also but for being that on-demand person that's going to help the magic happen. But instead, they are just trying to cut back and they're just saying, well, you know, we can't really offer you that. Um, and so it's 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 a really short way of looking at things. It's not really appreciating. And because the medical certification doesn't have right now the organization of judicial interpretation, whereas we have a body that makes sure that if the state you get certified and then you follow protocols and you got your certification going on, you know, people are, are choosing to, instead of compensating or paying the right thing to the interpreters, they keep lowering the the, the rates. Um, you know, it, it is beyond me how these rates have gone down instead of going up. And as you know, inflation is an issue. Gas prices are an issue. Uh, it, it really drives people to not want to do this. And eventually it lets people that are not even in the country interpret for what's going on in this country. And I just don't think that's fair. You know, I, I just think that we need, we have a lot of talent. We have a lot of able individuals that are willing to make this magic happen, but they are not being recognized for their true value. And I think that it makes a difference with, with creating this awareness, at least the way in which you've spoken about your experiences in planting a seed, even if it, the seed doesn't necessarily sprout until way later. We don't see the results of our work until until years down the line. I think there's different ways in creating this awareness. You do it via via your advocating work. Uh, you know, including I imagine we didn't mention this, but you're also teaching 
the profession now. You're teaching Absolutely. other students about the profession. Tell me more about that experience and what you tell your students regarding what they're going to school for and dedicating their time and money. Well, I, I think the biggest takeaway for me teaching is, uh, you know, that, that we have professionals that are now willing to spend the time and the money to get a, a master's degree at, at, at La Salle University in our situation. Uh, unfortunately, there are not many universities that have interpreter programs or translators programs. So you don't really can count. You know, you have to depend on individuals that say, I'm a trainer and I can provide these services. But, you know, uh, it's still a, a non-regulated kind of business. They can do whatever they want. There are really no guarantees. So some I don't even think that should be doing it. I've participated in some and I'm just saying this is crazy. And I've been outspoken about some of them. Uh, but, you know, the thing is, that's my opinion uh, as anybody else. But I, I believe that when it comes to higher education and what we do, it could be better. And when you explain to your students the things that you need to do so they don't make those mistakes, they don't have to be wondering about the interpreter that doesn't want to share the knowledge. You know, it's just saying, OK, what is your uh, local professional organization for interpretation? What is your national professional organization. What are they doing? What are they saying? Would you consider doing a, a, a Zoom with them or, or go to a program? Meet other interpreters. Ask. Now I can connect them. Now I can just say, hey, now that we're finishing the program, now you can do your communities I and mean, not your, uh, your hours of internship at Children's Hospital, or you can go to the First Judicial District, or you can go to this courthouse. So for me, it's putting all the pieces. It's like, you know, there are all these dots that, you know, are there for us. But now you can actually connect them. And now you know that you have helped people. And the biggest reward is when you have former students working along with you. When you go to the courthouse and they're like, hey, Rudy, what's up? And it's like, hey, selfie time. And, you know, we, 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 we <laughs> use I celebrate because it, it is something that you saw them in the, in, on their way up. And they figured it out. It wasn't me. I was part of the process, but they believed in themselves. And if it's something that I said to them that made that change, I've done my job. Right. And when I see, you know, some of my students, I mean, I'm even getting emotional thinking about it. It's, it's a reward. That's how I feel. I completely agree, Rudy. And it's the passion. I think that that's what really leads the work and it shows that passion transfers over to the people that we get to talk to, to the people that we get to, if we touch their lives, that we get to touch their lives. I think that's what really it's all about. Had we had the opportunity of someone guiding us in that way when we first started, and I'll include myself in that bunch because sure. our work in essence, it's, the essence is the same. We're trying to create this awareness so that others can tap into the resource because because there's abundance everywhere if we choose to look at it that way. You know, this isn't about scarcity. There's enough for everyone involved. Why not share the resources? Why not share the love? So you do your your sharing in your way. I do my sharing in, in, in my way. But at the end of the day, it's about sharing the resources that are available and connecting people with other people. They want to connect to, to someone like Rudy out in Philadelphia. What if there's somebody out there that is lost, has no idea how to begin? I know that the, I know that technology does a lot for us now, but even technology, there's, there's so many options. One can get inundated in the options, Absolutely. right? Yeah. So Absolutely. even in that and knowing who to connect with and what to what to do, I think that it, you know, it, it makes a huge difference in in the in the process. I'd like to ask you, Rudy, in your opinion, how can we create more awareness of the profession itself? You've talked about volunteering and educating as you volunteer, because that that in itself is is crucial. I think we don't just show up and leave. At least we shouldn't. We should definitely leave a mark like you do when you volunteer. And of course, advocating uh, whenever we can and being very present. What other ways would you like to share on creating awareness about the profession? I think interpreters and translators by default have a huge heart. Anybody who gets into this profession, their heart speaks volumes as to why they're doing this. They really want to help. The, the, the problem happens about how you're going to be compensated 
that is going to make a difference. And we lose individuals that have a lot of talent because they can't make ends meet. Mm. And this is a problem that is going to continue until we begin to talk about it, especially at the medical interpreter level, because our heart is guiding us to accept the job, even though we know we deserve more, and but we can't put the brakes on it. And people are not willing to speak up about it. Mm-hmm. So I'm not saying that we should revolt, but I'm just saying that we need, as, as professionals that we are, that we have been doing this a little bit longer, we need to start talking also about, hey, who came up with this two-hour minimum? Uh, how about who came up with this mileage or travel time? Uh, I mean, where is this, you know, the standards of the industry? Who came up with that? And, and you know, I understand that as national organizations, you know, you're limited to how much to talk about compensation and whatnot. But I think we can start inspiring people to start thinking outside of the box and turning that good heart to become golden heart, not just in the sense of giving, but also being paid what they deserve because they have earned the right to do that and not just work for five or 10 years and still make the same amount of money that somebody who just took a class is going to replace you somewhere else with the same assignment that the agency may not really care a whole lot because they're just going to send an assignment saying like, here's the assignment, whoever can catch it, get it. And everybody's fighting for it or low bidding. Whatever happened to being the best, whatever happened to compensating for the best, this is a country that thrives in it. So why can't we start being loud and just start making that noise to make it happen? So I think it's the responsibility of every interpreter. If you're just getting started and you're listening to this for the first time, that's your responsibility. Figure it out how you're going to help somebody else, but also how you're going to help the profession change that because it's not right. I've been doing this for uh, since 2008, 14 years. Surprisingly, the medical assignments pay has gone down from what I started out. I am doing better because I kept my rates through legal and conferences and doing things. But when you're talking, if I'm going to just say, I can live off just working as a a medical interpreter or community interpreter, uh, unless you are working privately, it's going to be a challenge. Mm -hmm. So it's upon all of us. It's not just about the money. I mean, I think some people get confused that, you know, Rudy just wants money. It's just like, you deserve what you have trained and worked hard for. All those times you're out like three hours driving one way and three hours another way, and nobody paid you for that. And you're like, man, I lost money, but I learned something. Don't do that again. Or, you know, if I'm doing it again, you know, I better get paid more money. You know, when are you going to draw the line? Or maybe I need to go and get certified so I can get paid more as a court interpreter and maybe I can change my life a little bit. You know, you need you need to reach out to people who are doing this longer, but also the fact that you're doing it longer doesn't mean that you're doing better. So you have to kind of like check that because uh, some people like to throw around. I've been an interpreter for 15 years. I've been interpreter for 20 years. Okay. <laughs> what have you done? You know, what are you doing? You know, if we were to, or to say, I'm really busy. I'm, like, I'm glad you're busy, but I mean, I really don't know what busy translates or, or how you interpret busy. For me, I just look at how much money have I earned? And I said, like, well, that's pretty good. You know, I, I've been busy before driving to nowhere <laughs> and just getting a hundred bucks traffic. for the day. Exactly. And then missing the assignment and getting yelled at. Right. It's all my fault. You know, what did I know? Maybe I think of this. It, it's that I think we need to push for that. I love that. That's so very true. And I, and I think that the more noise that that we make, um, obviously the louder we're going to get, but being consistent, because I think that what happens is that sometimes some will join the efforts and then say, well, this is, this is a, a, a long haul or it's not working. So, you know, I'm done. Right. And, and then. Absolutely. Everybody wants done. to jump on the bandwagon when things are going great. Right. But the moment you start telling like, Hey, you need to give something to this movement. So at least we feel like coalition that, you know, you are in it, believing us. We need your signature. We need your voice. Can you support us? Uh, it means a lot to the people that we're spending our time. And sometimes people can lose the drive and just saying, forget it. This is the reason why nothing ever gets changed. That didn't happen with TSLAC. That didn't happen with court certification in Pennsylvania. 
And you know what? I'm happy to report in a way in Maryland, the uh, a group uh, of interpreters worked very hard and I believe they just updated their uh, um, compensation schedule. Hopefully it is what they wanted. And if it isn't, it's a step on the right way. So things can happen at the level of the nation. We can start growing as a profession. People can recognize and say, hey, I'm them and not see me as Michael Jordan or, you know, like uh, Elon Musk. But it's like, hey, that's Rudy, you know, and, and I already see it when I go on the streets. That's, that's interpreter. Good. That's right. That's right. Absolutely. You say that that there should be more talk about the business itself, um, you know, just just generally speaking. Where should we be hearing this more of like learning about the business, but also, I guess, the, on the flip side for the professionals that are getting in the business, you know, how they would transition into business itself? I think the professional organizations uh, have some sort of the burden to guide individuals as to how you get started, because, you know, nobody tells you about starting your LLC. Nobody tells you about how you can uh, start saving more money if you do certain things, if you become an escort or, or you know, compared to being a sole proprietor. So, so people jump into this profession and they start making money, but they're not paying taxes. So when tax season comes around, guess what? You get slapped with a few thousand dollars as a sole proprietor, and then you don't have the money because you spend all the money. So people lose that, uh, you know, energy. Like, oh my God, now I have to work to pay for my taxes. And then not only I have to pay for my taxes now, but I have to pay for my taxes for next year. And I, I don't know how this is going to support itself. And yet you hear about, well, if you have your LLC or you have your escort, you can do these other things and you don't have to pay as much, but you have to do a few more other things. Well, I like to hear about that. You know, like I I think that would be helpful because in essence, all of us as freelancers have to manage our own business. We're all our own CEOs. We need to make that happen. Mm -hmm. And if and and if we were to kind of teach that apply to, okay, great, you want to be your own business person. You do you have the certifications? Do you have the credentials? Good. So now let's marry the two and let's start talking about it. This is something I, you know, I touch upon in class, so people don't have to write their social securities on, you know, when they're doing job uh, W W nines for new jobs, they get an EIN, so then they can start learning about all those processes. Things I didn't know, but now they know, so they don't have to make those uh delays uh, to grow their business and they don't have to suffer about oh my god i have to pay all much this much in taxes you know um i think it's our, our responsibility uh, professionally to remind and find the people that are doing well to present and talk as much as i need to know about legalese or medical terminology about mm-hmm. the, the neurons and the protons and all that, which is important. I don't know how often it comes up, but it's important. But I tell you what comes up very often. Pay your bills, pay your taxes, get health care. That is nobody's talking about it. And we need it. We need to find people that are doing these things. So eventually it becomes second nature. So, so yeah, I do that. You should do it. How come you're not doing it? Challenging. I love that, Rudy, because it's so true. Like, if we really think about the profession, the majority are sole proprietors or are freelancers or, you know, they're independent contractors, basically, right. is what it comes down to. And you're right. It, it's not a required course to take alongside your interpreter training to do business 101, per se, or on the flip side of that, um, maybe like mental health right? Or how, how to, how to take care of yourself like that, that part, right. Uh, The health piece of, of the interpreter because of trauma, right? Like, like we've heard so much stuff happening, especially with the whole COVID situation. And, and um, that's something that we don't know how to handle you know, on one side, it's the business aspect, you know, all the monetary issues. And then on the other, it's, is our health and how do we do self-care and how do we take care of, of ourselves? So two very important pieces that I completely agree should somehow be a part of our training. These should be requirements. We're getting ready. We're not machines. Yes. We're not machines. We're not. We have that golden heart that, you know, needs to heal too, you know, and, 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 but we, I I just think that we forget about that a lot. So yeah, it's true. 
Such great points, Rudy. We're getting ready to close our session today. Unfortunately, I think we could go on and on, but I do want to touch on a couple of things uh, right before we conclude, Rudy. First and foremost, what would you like to share? What recommendation would you give any new young professional or new professional that's coming into the profession that you wish you were told before starting? I I think the main one is join the local professional organization that is there for you as a translator or interpreter. You're going to find a community of people that is there, but don't believe that just because it's there, they're going to cater to you. You need to dig and dig and dig until you find the people that are going to network with you and they're going to collaborate with you. Uh, They need to collaborate with you because they can't do it all. And if you play your cards right, you're going to grow with them and they're going to grow with you and you're going to appreciate each other as professionals. Great recommendation, Rudy. And then last but not least, where can our listeners find out more about you and the work that you do? I I, I used to be more uh, social media oriented than before, but I, uh, I've, I just slowed down a bit. I think it's just uh, I'm busier than before, and I'm, I have to think three or four times before I post anything. <laughs> but uh, I am on Instagram. I am on Facebook. I am on Twitter. I think if you do do Founder Banana Day, my name will come up somehow. Um, I'm available. I mean, I want to be reached for anybody that has questions or suggestions uh, because I, I do take things you know to heart. I, I really appreciate your time. I think uh, we laughed, we learned, I cried a bit, and and uh, but it, it talks about the passion, That's the right. passion that, that we share for what we're doing. I wouldn't be doing this, and I wouldn't have this level of feelings if it didn't mean anything to me, and it means a lot. I'm so very happy that we had the opportunity to talk. I'm sure that we'll have opportunities again, hopefully in the near future, one day we'll connect in person and I can ask you even more questions and um, we can go back and forth about this topic, about the profession, about the passion in much more detail as well. But for now, I'm going to leave our audience with all of the amazing information that you've shared with them. I'm going to leave them with your passion and Perhaps someday in the near future, like I said, we'll connect again and we'll do another part and see where you're at and you know what you're willing to share with us then, Rudy. It will be my pleasure. And I appreciate your time and patience uh, getting this scheduled, Maria. Thank you. Oh, Keep my doing gosh. the great work. It Thank means a lot so to the profession. Keep it up. Thank you. I very much appreciate you and, and your time. And thank you for your kind words, Rudy. We'll be in touch. Thank you. Until Take then. Care. Hey, thanks for sticking around till the very end. If you'd like to connect with me, head on over to the website, brandtheinterpreter.com and click on the connect with me tab. You can also stay connected on social media, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube as Brand the Interpreter or Mireya Perez on LinkedIn. Till next time.